Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. This meeting is being recorded. Welcome to Women in Fire Radio Show. Today we're going to be talking about wild urban interface and defensible space. Thank you to Fire Engineering for allowing Women in Fire to be a part of their radio show. I'm Lisa Baker, the Southwest Southwest Trustee for Women in Fire. Today joining me, I have Adriana Whitecart, who works for the U.S. Forest Service as a prevention technician, Bree Baker, who's with the Ember Alliance Resistance Communities for Forest Program Director, Megan Fitzgerald McCohen, who was NFPA Firewise USA Program Manager, and then Megan Sayer, who was the U.S. Forest Fuel, Fuel Technician. So wild urban face, urban interface is the zone transition between unoccupied land and human development. It is the line area or zone where structures and other human development meet or intermingle within undeveloped wildland or vegetation fires. As the human population grows, city boundaries expand and neighborhoods develop into wildland areas, now called wildland urban interface. These areas have a greater chance of being impacted by fire because they contain large amounts of plants, landscaping, fuel sources, and structures that can sustain a fire. The difference between a wildfire and an urban interface is an interface fire is more of a concern for people. It means a fuel could potentially affect man-made structures where at the same time burning natural fuel such as trees and shrubs. In this situation, a house fire could jump to the forest or vice versa. An interface fire has the potential to involve buildings and forest fuels or vegetation simultaneously. In California, there are more than 11 million people living in urban interface, which means more than a quarter of the state's population is living in a high fire hazard zone. Today, Megan Sayers from the U.S. Forest Service will be um, hosting the show. Megan, thank you. Welcome. And the floor is yours. Megan, you're on mute. Thank you, Lisa. Um, Like Lisa mentioned, I work for the U.S. Forest Service. I have over 20 years in wildland fire experience working on the federal side in suppression operations. And one of the things that throughout my career that I appreciate and sometimes take for granted is that it's constantly learning. And so when we first started out in fire, it was just excitement about getting out and suppressing fires and doing the fun, sexy things that comes to our job. But as I've moved through my career and moved up and not only has my job and my responsibilities changed, but the fires that we fight are different than what they were when I started. And as I've come to learn with the wildland urban interface, it gets more and more complex. It's not just simple between forest and homes and fire joining the two. You have an entire social atmosphere, political atmosphere, economic atmosphere that comes into play in this environment that makes things more complex. And through that, through my career, I've learned different things. And most recently, one of our guests today started working with me on my district and 
through talking to her, I learned more about some of the tools we have at hand. Oftentimes when we're talking about wildland urban interface, we talk to homeowners about their defensible space in home gardening. But there's a lot more to it than that. And there's a lot more resources and tools that go into prepping your home and your space because it's not just your land. It's the land next to you that matters as well. And so one of those tools and resources is a community wildfire protection plan. And Adriana, or as she likes to go by, Audie, after starting in wildland fire, decided to go back to school for a natural resources master's. And during that, her project she took on for her master's degree involved this community aspect of the community wildfire protection plan. And Audie, can you kind of tell us what a CWPP is? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me on also and i um, excited to talk a little bit about, um, yeah, what I, I spent the last uh, quarter or two at school looking at. And a CWPP, um, basically in a nutshell, can be thought of as a combination of a purpose, a plan and a process. Um, it can take on lots of different roles or manifestations and it can either be um kind of an assignment, a little homework chunk that you check a box, you get it done. And then a lot of people will refer to it as basically a document that sits on a shelf. Um, or it can be something that is really used to engage a community, get people fired up, uh, pardon the pun, um, and in, involved in collaboratively um achieving more of a fire adapted community. And so you'll hear that term a lot associated with um, probably a lot of the, the conversations we're gonna have today. And so a CWPP is basically a tool. Um, it's just uh, an evolving process. It's, and it's only as effective as um, uh, the people involved in it will, will basically take it into you know, implementation and one. Um, so, yeah, it's again like a tool, it's a purpose, a plan, a process. Um, it can keep people engaged, it can keep people on track, it can serve as a roadmap for becoming fire adapted. Um, and it, ca it can help a community prioritize and strategize what it is that's most important to them, their values, and the community. So, Adi, what are some of the basic parts or aspects that are in common? to different CWPPs? What are they covering? So um, I guess I'll start first with, there are three general levels of CWPPs. So um, you can have a county level, a fire protection district or FPD, or a local level, and local is air quotes, because um, that can be anything from a street, a neighborhood, to multiple cities. Um, and so scale is kind of a big deal with um, just how much goes into the, the particular level of a CWPP. So um, a county level plan might be more broad or considered kind of a landscape scale. Uh, FPDs typically focus a little bit more on operational and tactical elements, um, critical for emergency fire response. And then local plans can address the finer scale needs at the homeowner, neighborhood, or city level. So I guess to say what across the board does every CWPP um, harbor um, or, or touch on, it's it's hard to say because they are so different um, based on the needs. But 
within the Healthy Forest Restoration Act verbiage, um, which was uh, passed in 2003, and it was this legislation that was the introduction, the introductory vehicle for CWPPs, or authorized these um, this tool. They require very simple, very generic. Um, yeah, requirements, and it's that you have a state um, official, federal involvement, federal land management involvement, um, and local involvement as well. So local fire department, state agencies, and federal agencies. Um, and those are minimum standards. And a lot of my research, a lot of the, the folks that I interviewed, um, the subject matter experts who were in on this, said that there are a lot of CWPPs out there that just do the minimum. And oftentimes that is a barrier for these to really be a catalyst for change or adaptation. So the Community Wildfire Protection Plan, what, so when I, from an outside perspective, look at in here protection plan um i'm thinking like their fire hydrants i'm thinking of escape routes i'm thinking of stuff along those lines is that the kind of stuff that these plans are addressing um so i don't know if it's just me right now or if i can invite yeah, uh, Megan Fitzgerald McGowan or Bree, yeah, <laughs> to come on board to to chime in. Um, but they can involve, um, yeah, home hardening. So discussions and planning around home hardening or um, land planning, which is starting to gain more traction as something important to CWPPs that has been lacking, um, becoming more participatory, more collaborative in getting lots of different perspectives within a community to help figure out what is the most important. So yeah, um, are there enough fire hydrants? Um, are the escape routes actually viable for the community? Are you addressing vulnerable populations? Um, sometimes just saying, yep, we've got two escape routes um, for your, um, you know, expected fire behavior at a certain time of year when the risk is high. But if you take a case like Paradise, where the campfire um, presented fire behavior that was completely unexpected, or at least um, the all the variables that came to head all at once presented the perfect storm where your the escape routes were being blocked off, their plan for evacuation was completely thrown off track, and you had vulnerable populations, mostly people who were um, older, who didn't have vehicles, who had other kind of health complications, who had a really hard time leaving. Um, and then also people who just decided that they weren't going to leave because they wanted to stay in place and defend their home. And so addressing, address, you can address all of that in a CWPP if depending on what the needs are of that community. So in preparing for today, I did look up my, my community's fire protection plan and um, was kind of overwhelmed and underwhelmed at the same time by the content. And so, for instance, in my community wildland fire protection plan, in the implementation or actions to be taken, 
based on the analysis and the information that they presented was a lot about homeowners can do firewise and or we're going to encourage local departments and entities to talk about these type of topics. So what does that mean when, for instance, when my plan says, hey, the implementation part of this is for FireWise, or we have, um, you know, homeowners, FireWise, do your defensible space, and then that's it. Can Megan Fitzgerald McGowan, can you elaborate more when my plan says, hey, FireWise, what does that mean to, to me as a homeowner or even to um, our fire departments or our federal responders? Yeah, that is a great, great question. So um, hi again, I'm Megan Fitzgerald McGowan, the National Firewise Program Manager at NFPA. And and so just really to, to touch on what is FireWise so we can even have that common understanding of what it is. So FireWise USA is a recognition program that provides a framework for neighbors to work together to reduce their shared risk. So we approach wildfire at an FPA really looking at the built environment, which may be a component identified in a CWPP. And the idea is... Um, what can be done on private property because state and federal agencies might not have really that authority to come in there or that social license and acceptance to come in there. So it's about, hey, what can you property owner do at your home level to reduce your risk? And oh, you influence your neighbor and you should work together. So when you see in a CWPP, that broad statement of encourage firewise participation, what does that mean? Um, my perspective is it's probably left broad because it does vary across states and regions, how they facilitate um, and support participation. But, you know, we have criteria for the program on our website, but really probably that why it's not so specific there is like your, your neighborhood might be identified in your CWPP. Maybe they identify five neighborhoods. These are our top neighborhoods at risk. And we're going to do firewise with them. So each one of those neighborhoods would get their own individual assessment done to really look at the condition of the homes and properties within that specific um, boundary. And then they'll, they'll self-identify what their boundary is. And, you know, so neighborhood one and neighborhood three might be very different in terms of neighborhood one is small family homes, um, point two five acre lots or smaller. Maybe neighborhood three is like, one acre plus lots, more ranchers. And so it's, that's why they can't be as specific in the CWPP because of that variation. But then you have those sub plans that could be like an appendix. And, and so your fire department can do that outreach and encourage you to work together and in collaboration, do that assessment, come up with actions that fall under that umbrella of the CWPP, but they might not be called specifically out because again those are more more broad but it's that connection between the two um so you know i think that that's a a stab at your question um but happy to elaborate more if you want i think that's it brings in a point about the community wildfire protection plans on something that could be a strength in the plan but also a weakness in that they lead readers to go down one route but then leave them to figure out exactly what that means for their 
piece of the pie, Be- mm-hmm. like you said, because their piece of the pie is going to look different than somebody else's. Um, and especially, right, one of the things that I liked about when I learned about CWPPs is like the idea of bringing everybody to the table, because it doesn't matter if I do the work on my piece, if the piece next to me or the piece, you know, two houses down or the public land that my property bumps up against if the work's not done there because the it doesn't help if the fire's raging on that side we've seen it before where there are homes that have defensible space but because of the landscapes and the fuels adjacent to it are carrying fire at such an intensity that it negates whatever work i've done on my property and so i do like that idea where it's broad so that we can interpret it what does that look like on my piece? Because that may look different for somebody else. So it's not prescriptive, but at least it's starting somebody down the same path. So if I'm going down that path, where do I go? Where can I find more information? Or how do I know what to do? On my, like you talked about like analysis and knowing the risk or where do I go next then after I see that my piece of the pie says, hey, let's do this firewise. Let, let's go this route. Where do I go next as a homeowner? I'll, I'll, dive, I'll dive in there until someone else wants to chime in. So, um, you know, as that as that resident looking at your your broader CWPP, oh, we should do Firewise. Um, you can go to firewise.org. That's the starting spot to learn about that specific program. Um, but, you know, depending on what state you're in, that state forestry or natural resources agency might also have resources to help you. And, and really, I mean, the first place I like to point people to is local. Talk to your fire department. They might actually already know all about it. And they'll be so excited to have someone who who's interested and wants to be that proactive leader for their neighbors. You know, I think... Um, one reason we see so many collaborators as a part of the CWPP development process is no one has the capacity to do it all on their own, right? It's really about bringing these different um, groups together to work together to help identify those common values to protect, to save, to, um, you know, those things to work towards. So, you know, talk to them. And and then if your fire department doesn't know, they they might have a network to then push you to, but it, and it could even be, maybe you start with, well, my neighbors aren't ready, but you do a home assessment and then you start talking. And it's really this idea of grassroots community led. And I'll put this out there. Fireways USA is a voluntary program. So right, it's a tool in the toolbox under um, this fire adapted communities umbrella that was uh, brought up earlier. Um, but it, it's, it's not the only thing, but you know, it's this idea of you're organized, you have a committee, you do an assessment and you have a plan and then you do the work. And I think that's where, whether it's a CWPP or just a community action plan, you can have everything documented that you want, but then you have to do the work. Right. And you have to keep doing the work and, and it's a process. It might take time, but I, but it's, Communication is where you start talking to people and then kind of going from there. But the resources are online to help you at firewise.org. Thank you. So other there's a lot of other projects or entities like Firewise that get mentioned in the CWPPs as like part of the plan or the implementation. And thinking about that, we have Bree here with the Ember Project, 
wanting to know how entities like hers get brought into CWPPs, whether it's in the planning and development phase, or is it um, the Amber Project comes in with the implementation or the action part of the plan? Could you elaborate on that for us, Bree? Yeah, for sure. Um, again, I'm Bree Baker. I'm the project uh, director of the um, Resilient Communities and Ecosystems Program at um, at the Ember Alliance. And the Ember Alliance is a nonprofit organization. Um, and we actually work along the continuum of CWPPs and mitigation more generally. Um, starting kind of at that sort of process document generation level where we're working with um, be it a fire district or a municipality. Um, they'll come to us and say, hey, we're looking into writing a CWPP. Can you help us? Um, and we have folks on my team who have the expertise to do the modeling and who have experience going through the process. So we kind of sit in on the development of the plan um, to help guide some of the, the process pieces, but the actual comp the meat of the plan comes from the community. Um, and when I say community, that is kind of a little bit more broad of a, of a term and it encompasses, like I mentioned, fire districts, but also sort of grassroots folks. And the better job we do at engaging people um, throughout that community, the better job um, that they can actually do with implementation once we leave. Um, so our, our role in plan development is to kind of uh, lend our expertise in, in what we've learned in doing a number of these plans with different folks in different places um, and, and kind of help out with, with that piece. And we actually have a um, CWPP process course uh, that we've been developing with a couple of our partners, um, including coalitions and collaboratives, um, and plugging in with folks from the Fire Learning Network to actually make that sort of a national uh, plan or a national course. Um, because as, as we've mentioned, there's a lot of variation across the, um, across the nation on how we approach CWPPs. Um, but we, well, we kind of help folks through that, that roadmap, like Adi was mentioning, starting with kind of that plan conception, walking through prioritization and risk identification and pulling those pieces into an implementation plan that folks can actually stand behind. And one of the big key pieces that I think we've been kind of hinting at as a group here that, that can be an issue is if we don't identify actionable, um, actionable projects and actionable um programs to be working off of, um, then the plans can end up being something that just sits on the shelf. So what we really like to um, to focus on is that the CWPP document shouldn't be the only reason for putting the plan together. What we're really looking at is that process piece ahead of doing my, is that my audio? I have you just fine. Okay, cool. Um, that That process piece, um, because it allows for sort of longer term um, change. And then my organization does actually do um, mostly more locally. We're based in Colorado. Um, 
And one of our other programs that the Ember Alliance does um, is focused on pile burn associations um, and helping communities to learn how to put put together kind of that grassroots piece of, of doing implementation on their own properties um, and helping to give folks the tools to do that. Um, and we actually also do have some crews that um, contract with um, both other nonprofits as well as the, the forest service to do implementation work as well. So we kind of run the gamut, um, but not all of those necessarily are, um, prescribed in a CWPP, because again, that's a starting place. And what we're really looking at is the relationships that you build while developing a CWPP um, and, and what sort of work that allows after the fact. I like that you mentioned relationships because I don't, I don't think it matters what profession you're in or what job you're in. They talk about whatever challenge you're facing. The, the one aspect that really helps something be successful is having and working good relationships and mm -hmm. uh, right. Like life lesson, everybody pro tip on life relationships, help you move forward and be successful in so many different aspects, but it is one of the things that I've chatted with Audie about at work is um, some of the challenges that come with these CWPPs and this um, kind of comes around with everybody coming to the table with their own idea of what's important their own um, values at risk, what is there for them. And those social aspects are such a huge, difficult thing to overcome. And so I like that you have available, I went right, I just really quickly Googled your, your website and I liked how going through it, it was all about focusing on bringing people together and like, starting in the same place, finding common ground. And then when you said you're working on having this national training to help people understand the process so that they can go through it together, that, that so they can get to the same page, right? So that they're at least in the same book and then they, and they can, it's like a choose your own adventure and that together they choose the next route they're going to go. Yeah, I'm really excited. We'll actually be putting that, that, course on at the national wildland fire cohesive strategy conference in the fall. Um, so I'm really stoked to, to be able to interact with sort of a new group of folks, because like we were mentioning, since it is the, um, the healthy forest restoration act does kind of only have those three minimum requirements for a CWPP, the collaboration, which they, they do kind of, put in there, but it's not constrained in any kind of way on what that means necessarily. Fuels reduction priorities and then treatment of structural ignitability. And from there, we're kind of left to figure it out what works in, in our own individual communities. Um, and I think that the, the CWPPs that we're seeing now that are coming out in this new way, there are a lot of CWPPs in development in the next, in the last kind of few years and um, there was like a first wave back in they, the uh, legislation came out in 2003. So there's a lot of plans that were finished in 2007. And then 
a few kind of got updated and in between, and then there's been this new um, revisit to two CWPPs. Um, and there, there's kind of an idea in, in some spheres that I've, that I've heard of this kind of next generation CWPP. And we use that terminology um, at the Ember Alliance, but I can't take credit for it. Um, it comes out of ooh, one of the Colorado counties um, has what was kind of the, um, the point of the sphere on that one. Um, but a lot of what we're focusing on in those newer plans is this idea of, okay, so we're not just looking to be reactive. We're actually trying to have some sort of uh, proactive piece to this where we're not just doing mitigation work. We're thinking about how, how, how do we need to both look at the built environment and the people that live there um, in addition to just a more general priorities fuels reduction and talking about where we need to cut trees, which in some places does need to happen, but it's not the only thing that we need to do if we're going to be building fire adapted communities. Yeah. Right. I think that's really easy to focus on that because you can see that, right? You can look at trees, you can look at fuels and see a concrete. Here's something that needs to be done and it's measurable and you can name it and you can identify it. But mm -hmm. some of the other stuff you're talking about that helps us be more resilient in our communities you can't, it's hard to pinpoint a harder to measure. in name yeah. and harder to measure. Sorry, Megan, go ahead. Oh, you're fine. Um, I'm, I'm bummed because I don't think I'm going to make it to the workshop in, in the fall. Um, but it's exciting to see where CWPPs are going. And I'm going to put a plug in here, this idea of also being proactive. Um, NFPA also does a lot of work within codes and standards. And I think a big piece that has been missing over time, and and it's difficult to put it within a CWPP, but it can certainly be included in that built environment pieces, standards around how and where we build. You know, there are some excellent groups out there who are looking at like land use planning in these areas around wildfire. And and it's not to say don't build homes, but it's if we're gonna build homes and we know fires burn there, we need to build them in a better way right? We need to manage the land better for the things that occur there. So I'm just going to put that plug out there brief to, to help be that voice of don't forget really don't that forget the codes. Yeah. <laughs> codes because, you know, it's amazing to look at some of these areas that have burned recently and they have that opportunity to build back better, to build smarter. And there are all kinds of different pressures from whether it's politics, tax base, resources available to build, insurance and what they're giving back to those those homeowners who have lost. But, you know, we're seeing places where maybe they had put codes or standards in place and then they relax them so people can build back. And, and it's like, you know, the thought process sometimes is, well, we've had our fire. We've had a fire. But but that doesn't mean you won't have another fire again. And, and your landscape might be different. If it was a heavily forested area, maybe it's going to be more grass and brush. But the conditions like the topography, the weather, the lightning patterns, all those things that contribute to a fire environment, they're still there. And I, a good example, I think, for this of seeing these challenges is where the Marshall Fire burned in Colorado. And, and Bree, I don't know if you have any further insight, but 
they had opportunities to make some changes and one city did and one city did not. And it's, it's from, from our organization's perspective, it's just like, you're just banging your head against the wall because how do we expect to have different outcomes if we're just doing the same thing? So when we look at a CWPP and that built environment and these new iterations that are coming out and, and even um, the funding through community wildfire defense grants did talk about um, including codes and standards development for your area. I just really think it's, it's a, a place where people don't like to think about all that regulation, but it's an important place to think about. So sorry, just a little. <laughs> no, so, it, for sure. And, and oh. it'll make you happy to know that I know that at least there are a few Colorado counties that are, that are starting to think about that. I can't speak to other places because we don't work as closely with county folks, but um, elsewhere, but I know that we have um, one of the plans we're working on has a pretty strong codes and standards component um, that that uh, the CPAW uh, um, mm-hmm. are, um, and they, let me look up their acronym so that we're not leaving folks wondering, um, are, are leading a lot of that. Um, yeah, it's, it, it has been a part of the conversation for a long time. And I think we're start, finally starting to see like this embrace of bringing it all together. And that is so important because that CWPP has that opportunity to look at the landscape, fire um, suppression, and the built, the built environment, like all is one. This holistic approach, you know, the cohesive strategy is a holistic approach and, and that's just where we all need to be is seeing all the sides. And, you know, I also came from a fire wildland firefighter background. And when I was young, 20 years ago is when I started like, woo, I want to go put out fire. And then as you're in it, you start to see like all these other levers that impact what you're doing. And it's, and it's like, oh, suppression is important. And I will never say it's not. But these other other things are just as important. We have to do community engagement and adaptation and we have to do the landscape treatments that plug while you're while you're looking up CPAW because I don't remember the full it's community planning assistance for wildfire um and they're there that organization does for for folks listening they do a, have a pretty strong component of thinking about how um sort of the the built environment and wooey codes wooey is wildland urban interface um kind of inter- interact in what we need to be doing in those spaces. Um, which, yeah, I've always been surprised how, how that's often not included in, in CWPPs as much as it should be, um, which really just speaks to the need to, to lean on our relationships as we're developing these kinds of plans. And so like, if you're a fire district, you're not going to be able to develop the plan by yourself if you want an effective plan. Um, you need to be reaching out to all sorts of folks, but, um, for, for example, like even like water districts are often an, an, a piece to, to pull in. Like you, you, you wouldn't, you really have to sit down and think through all the kinds of impacts that a wildfire can have and identify who in your community can speak to each of those, um, and and once you have an idea of that, then those are the folks that can help to 
in four on a CWPP. And that's where we can get into the, some of the discussion that Audie was alerting, uh, uh, alluding to earlier with this consideration of um, social vulnerability and the fact that the kinds of impacts that people see from wildfire are going to be different depending on who they are, not just where they live. Um, and so the, the kinds of recommendations that, that need to be included in the planning and need to be included in the implementation more specifically um, may not just be biophysical risk reduction. It may have a social and likely has a social impact and it might even have a health impact. Maybe what your community really needs is HEPA filters. And that's not something that's traditionally been in CWPPs, but it's something worth thinking about. No, I really like that idea where you talk about thinking about all the impacts a wildfire has and how each and it's not always just the immediate here's the flames coming, you know, coming towards your house. There's also stuff that happens afterwards, all the rehabilitation because of the impacts of fire and all these different ways that it touches different parts of our lives that we don't necessarily immediately connect to fire. And I think that brings it back to some of the social challenges that are around developing these protection plans. And that was something, Adi, I believe you focused on in your master's project was these social challenges faced by the protection plans. Can you speak um, some more onto those there's, I like to call them challenges. They're issues, right? They're, they're frustrations, they're annoyances, they're, they're hurdles that we have to overcome. But what were some of the things you came across during your project? Yeah, um, so the, the social elements of CWPP, like that's what I focused on was what, um, what were some of the biggest barriers and also um, strengths that seemed to indicate or um, um, I mean, cause there's no cookie cutter. Like if you do this, it'll be successful. But um, some of the, the social factors that seemed to pop up time and again in the literature that I was looking at and in some of these interviews um, with, yeah, with Megan, with NFPA and Bree, um, and um, also with folks from CEPA was, you know, you're, you're dealing with, with one, you know, from one community to the next, you're dealing with very different um, dynamics. And so, I mean, culturally, socially, um, economically, education, you're talking about, you know, very different demographics. And so what I came away from with my project was that, um, like Bree was just talking about, is almost before you even pursue, anybody pursues a CWPP is for somebody to take the reins in doing a community profile, um, just taking some time to look at, sure, you know, the demographics data. Um, and Headwaters Economics has an amazing suite of tools that are free to use. You can plug in your community, your city, um, or county name, and it'll generate reports for you that can give you some really valuable insights, um, changes over time. And so that's a, another big thing with CWPPs is it 
really, if it's going to be effective, it's got to be what a lot of folks refer to as a living document. So, you know, it's, it can't be static because in five years, just like we talk about with fires, you know, fire comes through. Now you're dealing with different um, variables, different community constraints um, and challenges. And so, yeah, um, the social factors that popped up in just in my project was participation, collaboration and social capital. And so basically um, looking at the networks that exist within a community, the valleys within the community, um, the connections and partnerships. And it takes, you know, whether you've got a, a local, it, it's honestly, it's better if a local is doing this kind of evaluation, getting, you know, even going door to door, um, just talking to people with a simple little, you know, survey, um, you know, what are, what are the risks? Um, what do you consider a risk? Getting agreement on um, what are people's prioritized risks and values at risk, um, their challenges. And then also, you know, seeing like being new to central Oregon um, and what's a very visually apparent issue here is the houseless um, dem, you know, component of the demographics here. And so looking at, you know, a community specifically on whatever scale that you're going to address these social, um, yeah, these social barriers. So are they going to have access to information? If part of a CWPP is a communication plan during an event, you know, how are are these people going to get that information to evacuate if they don't have phones or they don't have internet access or they don't have a car? Um, you can yeah, use that to inform how are you going to then say, okay, maybe we need to reach out to social services as a partner for a CWPP. They can be the ones because a CWPP can be a colossal project. And that's, I think, why a lot of folks are kind of, um, they're intimidated by it. I was just starting into this project. I didn't even know where to start, you know, like what, where do you, where do you even begin? What facet do you focus on? And I, I feel like, yeah, the beginning, like, it, like it's all the pre-work that needs to be done before the CWPP can really then be approached. Knowing if, you know, you go into a community and there's been conflict um, between the government uh, you know, entities, yeah, and locals. Um, if you've got a history of contention, you're going to need to address that. And maybe um, that could be such a massive hurdle that a CWPP may not be the, the tool that you need, you know, in certain situations. Um, but yeah, the, the social factors are critical for you know, and thank you, Bree, for mentioning the other components of the CWPP being the fuels mitigations and treatments and, um, yeah, and then the treatment of structural ignitability. So, yeah, um, some people don't have the means to do, do fuels treatments. Um, so CWPPs are kind of, you know, they're, they're a tool that bridges a gap between, you know, we're going to just talk about financial components, um, you know, the financial needs of a community to be able to 
do the fuels treatments around their property, a CWPP is this amazing opportunity for the community to weigh in on where and how federal agencies implement fuels reduction treatments around the WUI um, on federal lands and then how additional funds um, can then be spent on non-federal lands. And yeah, I just, I think that if there's a, a, a big strength that maybe gets overlooked with CWPPs, it's that th this is an opportunity for communities to use this, um, this end product, but as a process to communicate, communicate and collaborate with federal land managers, figuring out where can you find agreement on where the best places are for fuels treatments, those federal dollars can then do that treatment and then possibly, yeah, um, do treatments on non-federal lands. And then, you know, WUI has those standard definitions about, you know, the half mile from developed edges, one and a half miles beyond that, that poses extreme threats with fire or that in kind of the opposite can be a fuel break. And then areas adjacent to evacuation routes. In a CWPP, a community can actually say, you know, that doesn't really cover all of our bases. You know, we have, um, yeah, watersheds that are really critical that kind of extend beyond what the um, cookie cutter definition of a wooey is. And we'd like to include that in our definition, or we have scatterings of development that also need to be included. So a CWPP can be a tool where, yeah, you can customize to the community's needs. Um, and again, it all goes back to the social factors of each individual community from one to the next. Uh, Adi, I'd like to, to touch on something you said, because I think that's important. You know, it was great to have the WUI defined at the, at the start of this program, but don't, don't let that definition be what limits your work. Um, when you look at some of these areas that burned in California, it wasn't in the defined buoy or even in Oregon with some of the past fires in Washington, Colorado. So it helps for prioritization sometimes within funding and projects. Um, but I like to look at like, if you have an area that has wooey, and those other areas adjacent should still be mindful of the different actions that homeowners can take or where some of those projects occur because embers travel, the wind blows, all yeah. these things happen. So, um, you know, Jack Cohen, who we worked with for a long time, retired researcher with the Forest Service, he really defined the WUI as a set of conditions rather than a place on a map. And it's that set of conditions looking at the structures and the fuels and the vegetation. So, you know, for purposes of a CWPP, it often is a place, but, but it can be more than that. So, and, and that's something to keep in mind again with that social piece. Um, I think it's been kind of touched on, but this idea of communication and collaboration, that's how you get that social license to even do any of the things identified in your CWPP. And, and some of those projects are contentious. Um, one thing I would recommend, and it was great, I think Adi touched on, is having that local person kind of maybe lead the process, but having a neutral party be that moderator when you're starting, starting those discussions around developing a CWPP. Because if, if whoever's leading it is seen as having an agenda, that might be that non-starter. So then how do you even get that permission from your community to move forward and do work if it's already combative? Um, so that social license piece, I think, is a big thing 
for any of it. And, and how do you communicate those values um, of, of what you're going to treat and what you're going to do and what those risk reduction strategies are. And, and you might have to just reframe how you talk about things. Sometimes a simple turn of a word can be enough to get people over that hurdle, uh, but you have to be willing to listen. So just- I like that. Like listening to you guys talk about those different points, it seems it's like a very strategic approach before you even get started is like identifying the players in the game. And then it's not a, like you said, it's not about me and my agenda. It's not necessarily, you know, like if I come in and I'm like, I want to make sure my house doesn't burn. It, it takes a very selfish look at it, but like the idea of learning who the players are and who has the social influence, who is a member of the community or an entity group within the community who people respect, they look up to, or they listen to. And right. That may be in some areas that could be the church in other areas that that could be, you know, like the, the social club there's in working and going through to develop the CWPP, getting those folks on board to be the people who tells the story, right? We talk about that a lot. Like I had to giggle really hard when Adi talked about like there are areas where there is very contentious, like, we don't like the federal government, you know, we're different. We don't, and we can't come together at the table. And that, that disagreement and that contentiousness gets in the way though we may be talking about and wanting the same things. And so, like you said, like that, finding out who's that player in the field, then who could be the umpire and be that neutral part who can tell the story in a way that brings people to the table. It's a very, Right. We think about, you know, the plan and the hard piece at the end. Like, it's just so logic, people. It doesn't it just make sense to everybody. And then you realize, like, the social part of this entire thing, the community part of this plan is this its own beast. And it's it's emotional and it's not measurable and it's not logic. And you do have to think about it in its own part and, and a separate, you know, a, the, together and separate from the actual plan itself. And it's it's makes you think about things a little bit differently. But like as we sum up like our whole conversation on CWPPs, I want to give the opportunity to each of you to talk about um, one thing you want folks to take away, whether that's a success story you've had in engaging with communities, or it's something you just really wish that people walking away today after listening to this, they walk away with one thing, what is it? And I'll start out with you, Bree, as the end of this conversation what do you want people to walk away with? Wow. Um, just yeah. one thing. I think that the, that the one, the one sort of takeaway is that, and I, I, I think that I touched on this earlier, but, but that the document of the CWPP is just one, one piece along that larger, um, that larger roadmap that we need to be working as a community on and along um, to to build resilience and and fire adapted communities um, and that to get to that document some of those pieces of building building community and building bridges amongst both amongst in in, in inside of government entities you know sometimes there's even the the fire folks don't talk to the the city planners, right? And you need to have those sorts of discussions at that level, um, but then also um, sort of with the the community at large, but that 
that those relationships that you build in the process um, are more important than the document itself. Um, but that you should be engaging those folks when you do your document so that it doesn't leave folks like Megan looking at their document and saying, well, what does this even mean? Why, why did they bother putting this together? I don't know what, what they're actually saying. Um, Cause you want your document to me to say something. Right. Bring me along in the journey. Bring, bring me along. Don't just drop me off at the destination and expect me to understand how we got here and what the, what the purpose is. So we'll move to the, to the other Megan. If you can limit to one thing you want folks to walk away, what is the one thing? Oh, one thing. Let's see how many things I can squeeze into one thing. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's kind of how you started. Be curious, ask questions. And I think that's how you make a successful CWPP or just a, a wildfire strategy in your areas. You have to talk to people. So look at the problem, start start those conversations. Be, as we like to call, or we used to call our, our FireWise resident leaders, be a spark plug, be out there advocating for, for risk mitigation strategies, for proactive, you know, codes and standards. But if, if you're hearing this and you're inspired, don't assume that other people are doing it. Help be that voice, help share the story, make those connections. And, and I think that's hard because I think we're in a world where people do less and less face-to-face communication, but, but, but we can't let that go. We find that it's more, we see more effective progress forward when people do engage in those face-to-face conversations and talk to each other. And so, you know, don't, don't be afraid to, to reach out. If you are that curious resident saying, what does this mean in my CWPP that I'm going to do firewise, go talk to your fire department, you know, start the conversations. So I think that's my, my one thing is you got to talk and you got to talk to all kinds of people. Don't, don't be afraid. That's funny. I, I laugh at that because I don't know how many times I've said, I hate people. I don't like, oh. right. You know, and I, but it's, it's because it's so daunting well, how, because how when you start you- talking to them, they, you have all these differences, right. And all these different things, it expands what you thought when you do it. How many people joined the fire service, whether it's wildland or structure to, to be a social scientist, right? Yeah. Not me, but it's what we do every day. And I was so glad in my master's program that I actually have to take some social science classes because I don't think we're all always well equipped to do it, but it's probably the most important thing we do every day is that human to human connection. It's funny that you say that because I'm pretty sure I did. I got into wildland fire so I could go into the woods and get away from groups of people, but it is, it's, um, it's like I said, it's not as obvious for me to just be like, you need to do these things, right? There's an entire social emotional component of why we do or don't do the things that we may or may not know we should do to make things less risky or make our living areas more safe or resiliency inspired. So it's, yeah, talk to people. I will personally try to embrace that more. Adi, if you, with all the research you've done and now working in this prevention position, one thing you want people to walk away with. I'm going to build off of what um, Fitzy, <laughs> Megan, Megan Fitzgerald, Courtney McGowan, such a mouthful, said, um, is that 
one of the interesting things that was mentioned in interviews that was mentioned in the literature that is related to just getting people to come to the table was food of all the things was providing food for people, making it communal, making it fun. It doesn't have to be um, this dry thing where we're talking about a big scary thing that is threatening our town and our communities and our, you know, beautiful forests. It's um, yeah, we, we are facing challenging times with climate change. We're facing um, challenges with our development patterns and um, seeing fire behavior changing and so let's all come together let's figure out how to all help each other because it is it's a group effort it's a a team effort if you know five out of six homes do their home hardening and do their firewise and do their part but the one that stands out isn't doing their piece whether intentionally or because they're a second homeowner or whatever the reason might be like they're bringing in that risk and not making it as um um yeah, as fire adapted, because I mean, there, the thing is, is like C- a CWPP isn't going to stop fires <laughs> There's and a CWPP isn't going to prevent um, possible, you know, p- some possible destruction. Um, it's just that the CWPP can be that tool to bring people together. So offering opportunities where you're providing food, um, you know, maybe getting donations or potluck. Um, making those those meetings, you know, accessible to as many people as possible. So at night when people are um, off of work, um, somebody actually, Katie Lighthall with the Cohesive Strategy, she had mentioned, you know, in her early days working in Deschutes that they would offer coloring books and crayons and, you know, having people inviting them to bring their kids so they have a free meal. Um, yeah, just making it more community um, throughout the whole process. And, and I guess even inviting the people that you think you're going to have <laughs> some disagreements with, um, because those might be the people that derail you later down the road and you may have some, yeah, aha moment in, in the process of having a meal together where you realize you can work together. I totally think I can get behind that. More food at <laughs> meetings. I get, well, and it makes that right? I would talk to people. Food makes things less intimidating. It's a common denominator between people. We all eat and it takes away that scariness or the intimidation of talking to a stranger. If the first words out of your mouth are, can you pass me the salt and pepper? It it breaks it down and makes it simple. So with that, I want to thank all of you for coming today and, and sharing your perspectives and your experience and your expertise with listeners. And for our listeners, to if you are curious, you heard some different places you can go check out and look. You can talk to your fire departments. You can talk to different people within your department if you yourself are a firefighter, asking those different questions of different people. You can do what I did and just pull out the old Google and Google your community and CWPP and like what comes up. You can check out on your local state level forestry department, natural resource department. That is also another starting place as they're another player, one of those minimum people who have to come to the table for a CWPP. And then like you heard here from our guests, they're working hard in putting together resources for folks who are wanting to take action and 
work on making their communities more fire adaptive and more resilient when that fire does come. We've heard it here that there are resources on FireWise on what that looks like in your community and how that may look different from neighborhood to neighborhood and how the Ember Alliance is doing, putting on together courses so that we can all come together to the table and have the same conversation. Again, thank you. So I'd like to thank each guest for being a part of the radio show. And two things I'd like to reiterate is that um, one of you mentioned that people stay to defend their homes when there's a wildland fire. And the fire department would really appreciate if you do not do that. It puts resources that take being taken away from actually fighting the fire to go rescue you. So we understand that that's what you want to do. But please, if you're told to evacuate, evacuate. It's the uh, and two of the resources are um, firewise.org was mentioned. And also the um, International Association of Fire Chiefs has a lot of information on the uh, CWPP program, which is the IFAC.org. And probably if you just Google um, community wildland protection plans, you can find the own, your protection, uh, the plan for your area. So thank you again, Fire Engineering, for allowing Women in Fire to be a part of your uh, Fire Engineering Radio. Thank you to all the listeners and members of Women in Fire. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram and check out our website, womeninfire.org. And we will be having our international biannual conference in September. So that's listed on our website. So we hope to see you all in September, which will be in San Diego. Thank you again for joining us.